Shalom mishpacha. Shalom, family. Mishpacha is a Hebrew word. means family. And we're the mishpacha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people. We're the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. It's finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, mishpacha, to blow the grandest shofar, or the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to be red hot for the Messiah. Well, my guest has no choice. He's got to be red hot for the Messiah because he was the worship leader for one of the greatest revivals that has occurred in the 20th century in Pensacola, Florida, the Great Brownsville Revival. Linda Cooley, um, approximately how many people did they say came to that revival from literally all over the world? I think the approximate number is about 4 million people, Sid, over a five-year period. And um, I'm going to take you back so that people know a little bit about you. Your parents were in ministry. They actually, on occasion, led worship for uh, uh, A.A. Allen in the tent meetings that he had. You grew up hearing about miracles. As a matter of fact, uh, you were telling me about your grandmother came over your house uh, because she was dying from pancreatic cancer. She was down to like uh, 89 pounds. Uh, and tell me about that. Yes, sir. My grandmother lived in Missouri, and we're, my parents are here in North Alabama. And uh, my aunt brought her to our home. Uh, she had been through a couple of rounds of chemo. She had lost her hair. She was down to 89 pounds. And basically, they had given her a death sentence. Now, I certainly don't recommend that everybody do this, but but my grandmother was a woman of faith, and she really believed that if she could get alone and hear with, hear from the Lord and go on a fast, that that she could receive a miracle. And she came to my home, and my aunt and my mother helped her in the door, and she basically said to my mother, whose name is Shirley, she said, Shirley, I need my my room here, and I need you just to let me go into the room, let me be there alone. And let me hear from the Lord and looked at me and I was about 15 years old. And She said, Lyndall, I want you to bring me a pitcher of water and a glass to my door every morning and every evening. And I'm going to go in that room and I'm going to pray until I hear from the Lord. And I'm, I'm believing that God's going to give me a miracle. And uh, she stayed in that room about 10 days, Sid. And we would check on her periodically because she was in a very frail condition. And at about 10 days, somewhere around there, one morning I was checking on her, and I heard her feeble voice ask me to come help her get up. So I went into the room. We helped her get up, brought her to the table. She said, I've, I've heard from God. The Lord has given me a miracle. Tell your mother to fix me some broth. I'm, I'm ready to start eating. And that was, uh, I was 15. She was probably at 69 years old. And uh, my grandmother passed away in her 90s. And uh, she didn't die with cancer. So it was, a, it was an amazing miracle. Did that have a real impact on you as a young child? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because my mother is the same type of woman. I mean, and as a matter of fact, you shouldn't even be here. The doctors told your mother uh, not to have a child. Uh, she had, had two miscarriages. She almost died in the second one. She was in a coma, uh, literally dying. And what happened? Well, she, she, uh, the second one was actually uh, stillborn, uh, full-term stillborn. And when that happened, she hemorrhaged. She went into a, 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 a time of just hemorrhaging. They could not stop the bleeding. 
And the doctors told my father that she had lost so much blood and it had to have affected her brain. And they gave him the prognosis that she would be in a vegetative coma indefinitely. And if she came out of it, uh, she would not function as, as, a, as, a, as she had functioned before. She would be in a vegetative state. So they, they were a part of a church, and they lived in St. Louis, Missouri at the time. And that church brought the prayer team down to the hospital, and they lined the aisles of the hospital, the halls of the hospital, and prayed. And uh, after eight, nine days in a coma, the Lord raised my mother up. And uh, uh, probably a few months later, a year later or so, uh, she was totally restored. Uh, God healed her, raised her completely up, and... Uh, the story of my birth basically happened because they were told they could not have any more children. It just wouldn't happen because of all she had been through from the hemorrhaging and, and losing the children. It was just not going to happen. Or or I would assume if she if she tried, she could die. She could die, yes. And so, so literally, along about that time, uh, my mother was at home. My dad was working uh, at the factory. He was a factory worker. And they lived in a, a third-floor apartment in North St. Louis. And she was looking out the window, and she saw a woman walking down the street with twin babies in a carriage. And when the lady got to the corner, a lot of the old cities have taverns on every corner. She wheeled the babies into the, into the tavern. And uh, my mother really cried out to the Lord, and she told me. Uh, she said, I cried out to God, and I said, God, if you gave me a child, I wouldn't take them into places like that. I'd raise them in your house if you give me a child. And um, a few weeks later, she was having persistent morning sickness. She went to the doctor, and uh, the rest is history. I was on my way. <laughs> and uh, but, you know, That reminds me of a Bible story of Samuel. It was very similar with his mom. <laughs> very much so. As a matter of fact, Sid, when I wrote my first book, uh, I had not heard that story in my, all of my life, believe it or not. But in 1995 or six, I believe I wrote a book during the Brownsville Revival. It was semi-autobiographical, and I needed a story to start the book, and I called my mother on the phone. I said, Mom, is there anything about my childhood you didn't tell me? And she started crying. She said, yes. And I said, why would you not tell me this all my life? She said, son, I wanted you to find your calling on your own. I wanted you to find the Lord. I wanted you to follow him because he had called you. I did not want you to do the work of the ministry and fall into ministry because I called you to be in the ministry. I wanted you to find that on your own. It was a phenomenal story. Yeah, it's exactly like Hannah in, in the Scripture. Well, you know, we were talking last night, and you told me that uh, you, you did so many wonderful songs during uh, the revival. But uh, the one that I think would be appropriate right now, because these these are songs done in the midst of this greatest outpouring of God's Spirit uh, in the 20th century, uh, and the song you said that changes people the most, uh, it actually surprised you. It's the enemy's camp. Look what the Lord has done. Uh, and... and Tell me what types of reports you get from people that heard that song. Well, there's many, um, because it's it's one of those songs as a musician. I, I've studied for years to try to be a good musician, try to be a student of music, and it's kind of a music, it, it's not a musical challenge to play it. So music, musicians can be snobs, you know. We can be snobs. So I never really wanted to play it. 
But I started noticing that when I would play Look What the Lord Had Done, we'd get to the Look What the Lord had, uh, Has Done part, people would just be freed from things, and it just shocked me. Uh, one story was a musician friend of mine who actually came down to visit the revival, and both of them were in a very uh, a bad spiritual state, we'll say it that way. And uh, they had heard about revival, and they came to, you know, to be spectators and check it out and see if it was God or not or whatever. And we had a sign at Brownsville that you couldn't dance in the in the balcony because if it, because we were afraid of the structural integrity of the balcony. It wasn't designed for people to be jumping up and down. So we had no dancing in the balcony. So this friend of mine and her husband, she said, I'm sitting up there because I'm not going to be in the middle of all this dancing and any of this stuff that's going on. I'm just going to watch. And uh, she's actually um, kin to Dave Wilkerson, who's gone on to be with the Lord. She's a, uh, like a, a distant niece or something like that. She came up, sat down in the balcony, and uh, we started singing, Look What the Lord Has Done. And she said, I, I sat there, or actually stood there, and the Holy Spirit said, Lisa, I want you to go down the steps and dance. And she said, I started arguing with God. I'm going, I don't do this anymore. This is not what I'm into. I'm not interested in this. I don't want to do this. And the Lord said, I want you to go downstairs and dance. She said, she argued with the Lord all the way down the stairs and took her time thinking that I would end the song. But I didn't. I just kept singing it. And she said, when she stepped on the floor, she said, I jumped up and down the first time. And she said, when I first hit the floor, I felt the presence of the Lord, and tears started coming to my eyes. And she said, I jumped up again. And she said, every time I would jump up and every time my feet would hit the ground, she said, it felt like chains and things were falling off of me. So stories like that, something about that song and that freedom that it brings, it just would break things off of people. Well, you, you know what? I said we were going to play it today, but our time is escaping. We'll, we'll do it on tomorrow's broadcast. But I want to make available uh, because Lyndall has a teaching that will change your life forever. It's on worship. Six CD set. Uh, and, and what this does for you is it'll make you so hungry for more God. Then two of his best CDs recorded in the midst of the presence of God of the greatest revival and outpouring the spirit of the 20th century. Some of you feel dry and stuck by the time you understand worship, and it's different than what you think. It's an amazing revelation that he brings to us. God's presence is going to come upon you, and any situation in your life must be changed in the presence of God. The only problem I have, Lyndall, is uh, I tried to pick out five songs from your two CDs we're making available, and I like every song. And now we can only do four because we spoke too long. But tell me about the vision you had at age 14. I was in my parents' church here, and on a Sunday night, um, I was at the altar, and the Lord began to speak to my heart, and he spoke to me clearly, and he said, I want to use you to lead my people in worship. And when I was 14, the word worship doesn't mean what it means now. And I didn't understand it. I played drums, and I, I got up from that altar, and I didn't understand fully what he meant at 14 years old. 
I just had this urgency that I needed to learn how to play an instrument. I played drums, which is an instrument, but something in me said, you got to learn to play guitar or piano or something so that you can sing along with it. And uh, I just started playing piano. I don't really... And, and I am amazed at the supernatural gifting that God gave you on piano. We'll, we'll talk about that on tomorrow's broadcast. But I want you to get his six-CD set on worship and his two best CDs recorded in the midst of revival for a gift of $49. Call our order-only line, one 800 447 2697 one eight hundred four four seven two six nine seven. Lindell, on yesterday's broadcast, I talked about a vision that you had at age fourteen. Uh, God literally told you to start uh, playing an instrument and play, and you got on the piano and you found out you had a supernatural gift. You just hear a song and you're able to play it. That's a phenomenal gift. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's how it happened, actually. Yes. And when did you realize you had that gift? Well, at 14, actually, because I played drums before that, since I was five. So I had the rhythm in me. But I, I just, I, the Lord spoke to me. I want, I want you to take music, to take worship to the nations. That's what he spoke to me at 14. And you have to understand, Sid, I grew up in a town with 2,000 people in North Alabama, right on the Mississippi-Alabama state, state line. So the world, you know... <laughs> was a big, big charge. So I just felt this. I needed to learn to play. And I sat down at the piano and, and my ear just worked well. I could hear a song and I could figure out how to find the chords. And it just came to me that way without lessons. And of course, you're talking to a guy that can't even carry a tune. So no wonder I rave about a gift like that. Then at age 18, you had another vision. Tell me about it. Yeah, that was a, a, another one on a, on a service night. Uh, we were ministering to the Lord at the end of the service. And, um, uh, and the Lord gave me a vision at this point. And at this point in history, there weren't CDs, there were cassettes. And I had never been in a studio that actually I could see a studio recording console with faders and sliders and knobs. I'd never seen that. And I was, let, I was at the altar, and uh, I saw a cassette superimposed over a mixing console. And the Lord says, I'm going to use the music I'm going to give you to touch the nations. He said it again to me, but this time with the vision and, uh, and, and began to show me literally there'll come a time when, when there'll be uh, houses and, and places and stadiums all over the world that will be filled with worshipers. And that happened when I was 18 years old. Well, that, you didn't have to uh, wait too long for that vision to happen when you were the worship leader at the great Brownsville revival. Uh, but uh, uh, on yesterday's broadcast, uh, we were talking about the music you did there, and uh, there was one song. Uh, why do you think the song, Enemies Camp, Look What the Lord Has Done, affects people so radically? I think it's so simple, Sid, and the, and the rhythm is, is so strong that it kind of catches them unaware. And they find themselves clapping their hands regardless of where they come from. They're clapping their hands. It's got a joyful sound to it, but it's also got a sound of deliverance to it. And it's a sound of praise. Look what the Lord has done. He healed my body. He touched my mind. He saved me just in time. The message of it is deliverance. So I just feel like all of it together 
just creates this this uh, this moment of, of freedom and deliverance and, and chains being broken in people's lives. And and speaking of chains being broken, you spoke about a uh, relative of Dave Wilkerson that came to the, the revival meeting, saw a nice sign, no dancing allowed on the balcony because uh, you were fa- afraid it wouldn't survive everyone dancing up there and they, there'd be a problem. Uh, and so she said, I'm going there because I don't want this craziness. Uh, and tell me again what happened to her while she was listening to this song we're about ready to play. She was listening to the song, Look What the Lord Has Done. And she, she said the Holy Spirit spoke to her. She was very dry. And the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, if you'll go down those stairs and dance, I'm going to touch you. I want you to go dance. And she argued with the Lord, and I kept singing the song. And every step, she'd say, I don't want to do this, Lord. And the Lord said, I said, do this. She gets to the bottom, and she starts to dance. And she says, every time my feet would hit the floor and I would jump in the air, it felt like just years of things were breaking off of me. And there was a restoration happening. And I don't understand how God does that shit, except I know there's power in praise. I know there's power in it. Well, and I know people's chains are going to fall off. Just enjoy yourself. But if you're driving, pull over to the side of the road. Enemies camp. Well, I went to the enemies camp. Yeah. <laughs> 
well, look what the Lord has done. Wait till you find out what the Lord did for Lyndall Cooley before he became worship leader of the Great Brownsville Revival in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, You were worship leader of a major church in Nashville. You were doing work with Dolly Parton, with Garth Brooks. And little by little, you spend more time with non-believers. And you actually, it's hard for me to believe because as you you were raised with parents that all they did was talk to you about miracles. You saw miracles all your life, but you actually, would you say a spirit of this world came on you uh, and, uh, and, and, and you didn't really, it caused doubt and unbelief in what you had seen with your eyes your whole life? Absolutely. Yes, sir. How can, how can this happen? Because I see it happening to Christian people. They're, uh, they're raised with Christian families. They're raised with experiences with God. They go to college, and it just seems it just gets stripped from them. You know, I heard a friend say one day, said that every child, every son, every daughter of a believer, a follower of Christ, has to find the Lord for themselves. You can't live vicariously off of the uh, off of the experience of your parents. You just can't. And I had come off of a, a wonderful experience at the church there in Nashville because that it's a great church and there was no problem there. But I went into a year, to a year and a three months of really a dark place, where I, I, I can explain it. I have no way to understand it other than to say I began to read books. I began to read uh, a lot more. Um, psychologically based books. I started studying psychology, and there's nothing wrong with that either. But uh, for me, I just started exploring things, and and I began to just ponder things in my mind that, that, you know, the battlefield of the mind is critical, and in these days particularly, because those thoughts that are anti-God, anti-Messiah, anti-Lord are all over us. And it doesn't matter how much you've known the Lord, those things swim through the air consistently. The Bible calls Satan the prince of the air. John called you on the telephone and offered you a job to be worship leader at his church. And uh, he wouldn't take no. And he said, can I come by and see you? But coming by uh, meant going, going from Pensacola, Florida, to drive to Tennessee, uh, and he couldn't get there till about 11 p.m. So he gets there at 11 p.m., and you want to make sure that he does not offer you the job, so you take him out to a bar. <laughs> Tell me about what happened. I took him to a place that, that was really open late at night where all the the kind of CD folks go after after dark, and <laughs> and I th- I thought I could you know I'll, I'll scare him off you know and and you would have scared me off but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so it's so funny we sat down at a four top table and I had and I had uh, put together a list of twenty eight requirements I would have to ever take a job in church ministry again. That's how I was just at that point, and. Uh, he sat down with me and he started talking to me and so I just I said, Look, John, what are you looking for? What what's your job description? And uh Sid, by the Spirit of the Lord, he started reading my list. Uh it had silly things on it, like I won't do any office hours. Nobody hires you can't hire someone without office hours, are you kidding? But I, I said I won't do them. And he looked at me across the table not knowing what was on my list. He couldn't see it. It was in the seat next to me, and he says, 
He says, I would imagine someone who works the way you do, you know, the office would probably not be the most conducive place for you to do music and create and all that sort of thing. So just come to the office for, for staff meetings and that sort of thing. And then he just kept going, one, two, three, four, five. He, he didn't see this list? He could not see the list. No way. So he was speaking by the Spirit. Absolutely. The Lord was speaking to him, through me, to me, through him. And and I started weeping. When he got to about six or seven on my list, I started to weep. Because I'd just come out of a year and a half. I'd left a wonderful church. And I was in a year and a half of just crucible. I don't know how to explain how it came. You know, Peter denied the Lord three times, and but yet slept next to Jesus and traveled with him for years. So we we can go through these things. And, and man, he got to six, and I started weeping. And I, I put my hand up, and I said, John, I'm going to take your job. I'll just take your job, because I feel the Lord, and I'm just going to take your job. But I want you to know... I'm in no spiritual condition to be a worship leader at your church. <laughs> well, that, again, that would have closed the deal for me. I would have said, well, I want to get out of this bar anyway. Goodbye. <laughs> but he didn't do that, did he? <laughs> what did he no, say? He looked at me. He said he looked at me and pointed that finger in my face and said, son, you know how to get right with the Lord. You get right with the Lord and you be there Palm Sunday well, I believe it was April 9th, 1995, and start your job. And that was that. And, <laughs> and that's what I did. Uh, I bet you amazed yourself that you even did it. I did. I, but you know what, Sid, honestly, during that period of time, between the time he and I talked and I actually started the job, the Lord, the Holy Spirit got on me and started breaking me down. And I literally wept for two weeks solid while I packed my things to go to Pensacola. I mean, the Spirit of the Lord and conviction was on me, and I wept and wept and wept. The Lord already started the process. The minute I said yes, you know, if anybody's listening, sometimes if you'll say yes to the Lord, he'll start the process. But he doesn't start the process sometime until we make a commitment. We say, yes, Lord, I'll do this. And when you do, he starts the process, and that's what he did with me. Now, we're going to play a song that came right out of the revival that you wrote yourself called I Need You More. Where'd that song come from? I know it came from God, but tell me the experience that got birthed it. It came from a, a time in the sanctuary with a good friend of mine that I'd known as a child. Pastor's son came to visit me and stayed with me for a few weeks, visiting the revival. After lunch, we were headed to the house. He said, can we go back to the church? So we go to the church, and of course, I'd spent so many hours at the church. Going home was a good idea, but we walked around the sanctuary that afternoon, prayed a while, and then he sat down next to me, and he said, I need to tell you that I'm, I'm hooked on uh, prescription uh, medications, and I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I began to pray with him, and so we, we, right from that moment of prayer, we walked over to the piano and wrote the song, I Need You More. And I have to tell you, the Holy Spirit just interrupted this interview for someone that's listening. You get right with God as you hear, I need you more. Say I need you more 
That was, I need you more. And I have to tell you, I've been a believer over 40 years now, Lyndall. And I, I, my honest prayer is, God, I need you more than, uh, I mean, every moment I need you more than I ever had in my life. It's just I'm more aware that I need him more. I need him today, Sid. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you something. Here. I don't know what's going on. Well, I, I, now, how could you have taken a job where, and, and I, under, I understand Pastor Kilpatrick said to you uh, almost prophetically, he knew something special was coming. What were his, what were his words uh, when he hired you? This was before the revival. He looked at me in that, in that place that night, that restaurant slash bar, and he looked at me and pointed that finger. He says, you know how to get right with God. He said, and besides. God is about to do something, and he wants you to be a part of it. That's what he said to me. Hmm. Okay. But Sid, but Sid, I felt the presence of the Lord is, is what you have to understand. I was in such a dry place. And when I felt, I knew what the presence of the Lord was like, because I'd experienced it as a child. So I knew it was familiar to me. And when he started talking, the Holy Spirit started speaking to me, and I knew there was no way I was not taking this job. I knew. I was going to Pensacola. Okay, you are there 
on Father's Day, 1995, revival uh, breaks out there, and you just happened to not be there. <laughs> when did you first hear it happened? I heard it in JFK Airport on the telephone on Monday after the after Father's Day. How could you miss it? <laughs> well, I, was, I had had a commitment to to do a musical tour in the Ukraine, uh, and I was gone for two weeks, and that was pre that was a commitment before I took the job at, at Brownsville. And, okay, uh, I was flying back in, and I called John. And I said, John, I'm back in the United States. Just let you know, I'll be home tomorrow sometime. And he, he said, oh, Lindell, it's happened. It's happened. I said, what's happened? He said, God has come. God has come to the church. Revival is here. The Spirit of God is here. And he started telling me what happened on Father's Day, and I started weeping on the phone. I could not wait to get back to Pensacola. Well, let me tell you something. I can't wait till the people that are listening to us right now, that's you if you're listening, get a hold of your six CD set on worship. It will change your whole paradigm on worship. I'm not talking about singing. I'm not talking about a worship leader. I'm talking about that's what you've been called by God to be, a worshiper of God. And he breaks it down step by step. Amazing teaching. And then two CDs that were recorded in the great revival in Brownsville, Pensacola, Florida. Uh, my only problem is I wish I could play every song to you. The anointing is so strong. And as you learn how to worship, as you listen to this music, you, you are going to feel the presence of God and you will be able to move any mountain in your life available for a gift of $49. Call our order only line, one 800 Revival breaks out Father's Day, 1995, Pensacola, Florida, Brownsville Church. You're the worship leader, but you had a previous commitment. You're over in the Ukraine. Uh, You get a phone call from Pastor Kilpatrick, and he says, it's happened. Revivals broke out. You start weeping. Now, the, your first night at the revival, your leading worship, the truth. Uh, what was going on in your mind based on what you were observing? I was amazed because it was just in our church at that point. The world hadn't come. Even the region wasn't coming. It was just Brownsville. I was amazed at how free the people were all of a sudden. Because I'd led worship the Sunday a few weeks before, before I, I went on the trip. I couldn't believe the freedom that was there. It's almost like just the floodgates of heaven had opened, and people were free, and they were worshiping. They were all about the presence of the Lord, and they, they were, we were ramping up to it. I didn't know what it was. It turned out to be revival. We were ramping up, but this was something fresh and new and different. Now, I asked you a question when I spoke to you uh, yesterday on the telephone. I said, I'm just curious, Lyndall. Uh, many people were hit so strong during this revival. I'll start out with the pastor, Pastor Kilpatrick. I mean, he couldn't even uh, function for for weeks. <laughs> uh, I mean, he was just under the power of the Spirit of God. And I said to you, did that ever happen to you? And you said to me. I, I said to you that uh, about six months into the revival, because 
You have to understand when the Lord starts restoring you, it's a process. If you're out there listening today, the Lord wants to restore everything that's been stolen from you. He wants to return you to his presence. If you've known him in the past, he wants to know you that way even greater. And that's what happened to me because I had this experience with God, and then I moved to the Pensacola and started this, this revival started. Every night I would sit there and weep and feel unworthy to be on the platform. I felt like I had no business being there. I, and, and I'd sit in the choir loft and cry when we'd go to pray for people. And the Spirit, I'd say, I just don't need to be here. I shouldn't be here. So about six months into the revival, every night the Lord was just working on me. Six months into the revival, on a Sunday morning, it was high church, and <laughs> I was singing a song called Yahweh. And uh, the song literally had a phrase in it, faithful one, you've been faithful through the years or faithful to the end. When I got to the word faithful, I broke and started crying, and I literally lost control. I could not play the keyboard. I fell on top of the keyboard, made a horrible sound. By this time, we're six months into revival, so people are used to, you know, they're kind of used to that at the church. We're seeing people fall. So the ushers come and take me off the keyboard and lay me down on the floor. And about four hours that day, I laid in the floor. Four hours? Was God speaking to you during those four hours? Yes, sir, he was. He was telling me, he said, son, you've allowed this to get on you, that to get on you. I want to take these things off. I want to remove these things. And layer by layer by layer, the Lord was just removing things. And as he'd remove things, I'd weep. And he, he'd remove, because people don't understand the Lord, you get so much so much stuff piled up on you in this world that when the Lord starts to take it off, some of it's dear to you, and you think, I can't part with that. But I promise you, friends, when the Lord is trying to remove it, let him remove it because the other side of it is freedom. So after four year, four hours, I get up. I'm a mess. I've got tears everywhere. It's awful. I get up off the floor, and the Lord says to me, I have restored your innocence to the days that you were 12, 13, and 14 years old, when you loved me and danced before me and did not have any of this stuff on you, I return you to freedom. And I'll tell you what, Sid, from that day forward, I've never been the same person. Never have I been the same person. I don't care as much what people... I used to worry what people thought all the time. And now it's like, it's about his presence. It's about, it's about the Lord. And it's just not about whether... You approve of me or someone approves of me. It's about him approving, and can I minister to him, and can I care for him, and can I give back for what he's given me? Now, you know what you're describing to me? The, the opposite of what mainstream Christianity in America is like. America is seeker-sensitive. You're describing a man that becomes God-sensitive. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, see, God has to be the central force and the focus of the universe, because he's the only one worthy. He's the only one who has premium worth, only God. And if that is not in order in all of us, regardless of your belief background, if, if, if Yeshua, if, if, if he's not the center of all things, if he's not, then nothing else in the kingdom works. Well, well, you know what you remind me of as you're talking right now? You're reminding me, uh, there's a word, uh, it's called luke 
warm. And that's what American Christianity has become. But it's about ready to change. And there was a man most of you are familiar with by the name of William Booth, founded the Salvation Army. And he wrote a song for the same problem. People were lukewarm. And it's called Send a Fire. And that's what we need today, Lyndall. We need the fire of God. Now, uh, uh, William Booth got the fire and started the Salvation Army. But those that are listening right now, I know you're going to get the two CDs done within the context of the worship at the Brownsville meeting and the six CD set on worship. And uh, I think most people think of you as a worship leader, but God anointed you as a teacher. And the most important thing you teach is how to get your first love back, how to really worship based on the Bible, how to capture God's presence so you can change any situation in your life. I want to play a little bit of Send the Fire.
Lindell, you're a worship leader. You will always live for worship, but now your passion is to cause people to learn how to really worship God and get into the presence of God and intimacy with God. uh, But uh, how did you make the jump from worship leader to pastor? Well, it actually came, Sid, as a result of study. I had heard, I had read many worship books about worship. People were handing me books about worship through the revival. And I had never really studied the scripture a lot on worship. So I basically went back to the drawing board of the scripture uh, of the 66 books of the of the Bible, and I uh, pulled out the words worship, and I found the most interesting thing. I found that in the Old Testament, there is one word that is used uh, 64 times uh, in, in as the word worship. Uh, when when Abraham worshipped the Lord at the altar, it, it's this one word, shakar, 64 times. And then I looked at the New Testament, and there was another word called proskune, which was used 34 times. Well, the word worship is only used 108 times in the, all of the Scripture, according to the English translation. So if you take uh, 54 and 34, you have 88. So that only leaves about 20 uses for the other words. And I was shocked when I read the meaning of those words. Proskune means to to fall down, to prostrate oneself in homage to God, to do reference to, to adore. Shakal means to, in homage to royalty or God, bow yourself down, crouch, fall down flat, humbly beseech. You know what? I don't hear anything about music and singing in the definition of those two words that were used the most. No. Praise is where the music is at when you, when you study praise. But in worship, it's all about humbling yourself. And I, we were telling a story the other day about I was at the airport, and uh, I, <laughs> I was walking by a shoeshine booth, and I noticed there was a Muslim man. And he was in the middle of his work in his business, and he excused himself. He finished a customer, and he had other customers lined up. He stopped, and he said, give me just a few minutes. And he, he spreads out his prayer mat right there and bows and, 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 and humbles himself to worship and pray to Allah at his prayer time. And I, I was amazed 
to see that happen in a businessman's situation. Well, Christians wouldn't even pray in tongues when someone is around them in an airport, let alone get on a mat. And by, by the way, uh, that this whole definition of the word worship that you're using about prostrating yourself, um, uh, there's something uh, I think Islam got it from Judaism about the when you do that, your your um, heart. What is the, explain the position again? When you bow down, as the Muslims do, you bow and your your heart is elevated above your head. So literally, when they borrowed that from from Judaism and they borrowed that from the way we worship Jehovah. Then, then literally, but as I see Christians these days, they don't understand that. It's all about standing stoic in a meeting. Uh, it's a big deal if they lift their hands. Never do they bow. But, but see, they don't bow because they don't understand how our God has been treated by his people through the years. He's been used. He's been neglected. And people don't understand that God is a person. And as a person, he can be cultivated. He has a personality. He has feelings. He has thoughts. And if you can cultivate a friendship with anyone, you can cultivate one with God. Well, imagine if you were God and all you ever did was good to your people, and they rejected you. I think about that when I worship the Lord, and that's what drives me to worship the Lord, because he's done nothing but good to me, Sid, nothing. And he's so worthy, and I wish I could spend the rest of my life just returning back to him, just a peace of all the goodness he's given to me. And it drives me to worship him. And I wish it would drive every person who believes in God, Jehovah, to worship the Lord. If someone, if someone took your teaching to heart and started doing what you teach them to do, what you do, as a matter of fact, what, do, what is your worship like in the morning? Tell me about it. When I'm in my car, I'm singing to the Lord, I'm talking to the Lord on the way to business meetings and appointments, I'm talking with Him all the time, I sing to Him, I make up songs to Him. We keep worship uh, through the years, we, we, we try to keep worship music in our home, uh, because the atmosphere is, is moved by the worship. It, it absolutely fills the atmosphere with the presence of God, because He promises that when, you know this, Sid, when we worship the Lord, he will inhabit the praises of his people. He's going to come and house himself with you when you worship him. And when he comes, all of his goodness comes with him. <laughs> so for the person that's listening right now, uh, when I play one of your songs called Let It Rain, what is that about? That's about the rain of the Lord falling on the earth on the dry ground. He promised that he would send rain and relieve the drought, the hunger that we all feel right now in the world for the presence of God. It's our cry to God to say, Lord, send your rain and fill this place. Lord, move by your power. That's a, it's a cry out to God for him to come. If that's your heart, because if you're in a dry place, if you feel you need more, if you feel stuck, then listen right now to Let It Rain. I am dry and thirsty, Lord. Send your rain. Send your rain. And Lord, I need your 
I wish I could play that whole song for you. I wish I could play the two CDs done in the midst of revival. There is such a fire. There is such a presence of God on this music, Lyndall Cooley, and then your six CD set on worship. Uh, The Lord actually had you study everything you could about the life of David. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. About three years before I actually uh, left Pensacola, the Lord put me on a mission to study. And when I finished, he gave me an examination. He said, what did you learn? And I put everything down. I learned about David, great, great, the greatest king ever, all of that. But I did not put musician on there. And I said, Lord, and the Lord said to me, he said, you've left something out. And so I said, okay, okay, musician. And when I, I, I said that, I revealed my heart. I, re, I didn't think that as a musician, I had the ability to lead people. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, I'm calling you to build me a house where people know how to pray, and they know how to worship me and make a place for my presence, and I'm going to send you to do that. And that's how I became a pastor. Well, most of you aren't going to be able to get out to Tennessee uh, to Lindell's church, but I want to bring his church to you. I want you to get his six-CD set of worship birthed out of three years of studying the life of David, and it'll surprise you. Worship is not what you think it is, and you will develop such a hunger that I believe the presence of God is going to come on you in a fresh new way. Some of you feel dry or stuck, no more. And then the two worship CDs done in the midst of the greatest revival of the 20th century, the two CDs, the six teaching CDs available for a gift of $49. To place a credit card order for today's offer, call anytime at 1-800-447-2697. That's 1-800-447-2697. Or log on to our website at www.sidroth.org to hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural. Visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. Discover how you can begin watching for free our 24-hour, 7-day-a-week TV network, ISN, the It's Supernatural Network. You can write me at Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, 
North Carolina, 28278. That's Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.